Welcome to No Rain Date, a community podcast about local news and people. No Rain Date is a production of Saucon Source LLC. For more local news and information, please visit SaucinSource.com. Hello, and welcome to episode 26 of No Rain Date, the podcast of Sock and Source. I'm Josh Popachak, the publisher of Sock and Source, and your host for No Rain Date. And I'm here with the week's headlines for the week ending October 29th, 2020. The biggest story in Saucon Valley and throughout the U.S. and around the world this week is the upcoming presidential election which will be held Tuesday, November 3rd. That's been the talk of news media and basically everybody that you run into these past however many months. It's finally almost here. President Donald Trump has been paying close attention to southeastern Pennsylvania in the final days of his campaign for re-election. And he paid a visit to a business in Hanover Township, Northampton County, Earlier this week, on Monday, President Trump visited HoverTech International, which is located off Airport Road, north of Route 22, and his visit to hold a rally drew several thousand people to that area, to Hanover Township. That raised some concerns due to the fact that COVID-19 is surging across Pennsylvania and in many other parts of the country right now. It's a little too early to tell if The visit contributed to any significant amount of spread since it takes a few days for people to develop symptoms. However, epidemiologists and local doctors are certainly going to be monitoring the situation here in the Lehigh Valley. During his remarks, President Trump skewered his Democratic opponent, former Vice President Joe Biden, as well as his running mate, Senator Kamala Harris. We had a lengthy article about some of the criticisms Trump leveled against Biden. It was par for the course. Typical classic Trump, who is a very uh, plain-spoken person, and, and people tend to either love that or hate it. Biden, for his part, has also been frequenting Pennsylvania, although he has not visited the Lehigh Valley on his campaign. He's been close. He was in Bucks County around the same time that Trump was in Hanover Township. So it's certainly possible that he will make a last-minute visit again to Bucks County or even the Lehigh Valley. President Trump, for his part, is planning to visit Reading Regional Airport in Berks County on Saturday, which is Halloween. And before that, he's also scheduled to make a stop somewhere in Bucks County at 1.30. It's possible it will be at Penridge Airport in Perkesee. That's where he was rumored to be planning a visit for Monday, the 26th. That visit turned out to be at Hanover Township. So we'll be continuing to provide updates on that story, covering his visit to Bucks County. Again, both Bucks and Berks are seeing large increases in the number of COVID-19 cases. As a matter of fact, Berks County, according to the website COVID Act now, is now listed as a critical County in terms of the high number of new cases that are being reported daily. On October 28th, they had something like 135 new cases in Berks County, which is the most they've had in a single day in months. 
The same is true statewide. This week, Pennsylvania reported more than 2,700 new cases in a single day. I believe about 1,000 of those were in Philadelphia, nearly 100 in one day in Lehigh County. So these are big numbers. Fortunately, most of the cases are occurring in younger people. Unlike in the springtime, when the elderly population was being very hard hit by COVID-19, now we're seeing a younger demographic being affected and they tend to have more moderate symptoms. However, with the changing weather patterns, more people spending time inside, it's certainly possible that the demographics will continue to evolve and more older people will be getting infected as the colder weather sets in. It's, it's a day-by-day evolving situation, and it's certainly something that the Department of Health in Pennsylvania is closely monitoring. We keep tabs on the numbers daily, checking a variety of sites to inform our reporting because we want you to have the most accurate information and timely information possible so that you can be safe. Of course, not everybody takes the same level of seriousness when it comes to COVID-19. However, we take it very seriously. We hope you will too. We hope you will follow you know, the recommended safety precautions like wearing face masks and keeping at least six feet apart. The issue at the Trump rally, which drew several thousand people, was more that everybody was packed in closely together for a length of time. Most people appeared to be wearing masks. However, there were certainly many people who weren't, and photos and video of the rally show that. It will be interesting to see what effect these campaign visits, and particularly the Trump campaign's visits, have on the COVID-19 numbers in Pennsylvania in another week or so. Another big story we've been covering this week out of Bucks County is a shooting that occurred at Nakamixon State Park. Tragically, an 18-year-old man with his whole life ahead of him was killed. He suffered a gunshot wound to the back of his head and later died at St. Luke's Hospital in Fountain Hill. Police identified the man as Jason Cutt, who was a 2020 graduate of Penridge High School. He was at Lake Nakamixon with his girlfriend, who has not been publicly identified because she is a minor, and they were sitting lakeside getting ready to watch the sunset around 5.15 p.m. on Saturday. This would have been October 24th. That's when the shooting occurred. Cut's girlfriend told authorities that she had seen a man wearing blaze orange vest, similar to what hunters wear around the time of the shooting but he was some distance away near a gate that is at the access road, Old Ridge Road, which is on the south side of Lake Nakamixon. It's not clear if that man had anything to do with the shooting, but certainly police want to locate him and talk to him. They said in an update earlier this week that they are not even sure that a crime occurred. Hunting was taking place in the area at that time, so it's certainly possible that there was some type of mishap perhaps, but police have said they also want to identify several vehicles and the drivers who were behind the wheels of them. They released that information on Wednesday, and we have the make and model numbers and descriptions in our latest story about this case, which is certainly a sad one, and we hope that anybody with information about it will come forward, contact the Bucks County detectives 
or Pennsylvania State Police at Dublin. Uh, all of that, that information is in several stories we published on the site. Another sad story this week was a wreck on I-78 in Upper Saucon Township that claimed two lives, a mother and her young daughter. This occurred on Monday morning before rush hour. It was about 6.30 in the morning. A tractor trailer was parked on the shoulder of I-78 eastbound in Upper Saucon Township near the Summit Lawn exit. And for unknown reasons, a 32-year-old Allentown woman who was driving a work van went off the road and crashed into the back end of this trailer. She and her daughter, who was either four or six, it's been reported both ways, but she was a very small child. They were both killed, and neither was wearing a seatbelt, according to Pennsylvania State Police, who have investigated this accident. They did release the names of the woman and her daughter. However, they said that the case remains under investigation, and unfortunately, we may never know why she was off the road and crashed into the back of that truck. Obviously, that caused a huge traffic jam for miles. 78 is notorious, especially that section of 78, for these kinds of accidents. Thursday, there was another accident in between the Hellertown and Route 33 exits on I-78 eastbound. That accident did occur in rainy conditions. It wasn't immediately clear if anybody was injured in it, but it did cause a significant traffic jam. As we mentioned earlier, COVID cases have continued to rise significantly in the last couple of weeks of October. In conjunction with that, there has been another report of a COVID-19 case at Saucon Valley High School. An email from school district superintendent, Dr. Craig Butler, that went out to parents earlier this week confirmed that a student had tested positive for COVID-19. That is the third case associated with the high school so far this year. About a month ago, there was a uh, teacher at the high school who tested positive, and about a week before that, there was another high school student who tested positive. And following those two cases, the school was actually closed for five days to help with cleaning and and mediation of the risk of COVID-19 spread. We certainly hope everybody will be able to stay healthy. The school district said they were in the process of working with the State Department of Health to contact the close contacts that this latest uh, student to have it had before they were starting to show symptoms. Certainly they're, they're encouraging everybody to stay home if you do not feel well. When you do feel well, practice you know hygiene measures, wearing a mask, distancing. We all know the drill by now, hopefully, but it it doesn't hurt to repeat it. As we mentioned as well, uh, this is Halloween weekend and we wish everybody a safe and happy Halloween. It's going to be a little bit different because of COVID-19. However, trick-or-treat is still happening in Hellertown and Lower Saucon. Trick-or-treat is Saturday from 6 to 8 p.m. Saturday, October 31st in Fountain Hill and Upper Saucon Township, Coopersburg, Bethlehem City, and many other municipalities in the Lehigh Valley. It is Friday, October 30th from 6 to 8 p.m. It will be chilly, colder than normal, so you're going to want to dress warmly if you're going out. Also, consider wearing a face mask and social distancing. 
one of the recommendations from the CDC is to uh, perhaps put the treats that you're going to give out on a blanket at the end of your driveway or along the sidewalk so that trick-or-treaters can pick them up on their own. There's no hand-to-hand contact. That helps reduce the risk of spreading COVID-19. In Fountain Hill, they are also taking extra safety precautions by holding a drive-through trick-or-treat at the Fountain Hill Police Department. That is Friday from 6 to 8, and the police will be handing out candy to families in their vehicles as they go through this this drive-through. So that's another way to lower the risk. We certainly hope everybody will still have fun, though. It's a fun holiday. It's a time when you're going to wear a mask probably anyway, so why not wear a Halloween-themed face mask? We have a few of them, and uh, we enjoyed wearing one at Lost River Caverns earlier this week where the Hellertown Lower Saucon Chamber hosted a fundraiser to help benefit the cave. That was a lot of fun. We went on ghost tours of the cave. About 100 people attended, and there were snacks and refreshments Lost Tavern Brewing was there with some of their fall beers. Black River Farms was there with wine to purchase. And it was outside uh, under the pavilion across the street. So there was plenty of room to be outside. And it was nice to be in the fresh air, celebrate Halloween with some of our our friends and fellow business owners here in Saucon Valley. Of course, it's still football season. And we have Reef here now with a preview of this weekend's big game for the Panthers. Hey, Panther fans, Reef here to give you some crunch time scouting report for this Friday night fight between your Saucon Valley Panthers and those pesky pirates from Palisades. Palisades is 5 and 2. They opened up with a loss at Northwestern Lehigh 36 28. Then they rolled off four straight wins over Wilson, Northern Lehigh, Salisbury, Bangor. Dropped 27-0 to Notre Dame at Green Pond. Bounced back with a win 30-20 over Palmerton. Saucon Valley enters this game at 2-2, opening night loss. Hosting Bangor 34-25. Two straight wins, one-point wins over Southern Lehigh and Palmerton. Last week, the Panthers fell 55-28 to Northwestern Lehigh. Nightmare of a third quarter last week against the Tigers. 29 points scored after being down only 2014 at the half. The Pirate defense is led by the man in the middle, number 34, senior Ben Halbert. The Pirates run a base 4-3 defense, and Halbert is at the center of it all. Halbert measures about 5'9", 185, and it hits like a Mack truck. If Dick Buckus and John Riggins would somehow combine genetically and create a high school football player, it would be in the same class as this Halbert kid. Halbert and his pirate pals are a bit blitz-happy, and they will surely be coming after the Panthers with their aggressive style of play. They have only pitched one shutout so far this year with a 35-0 victory over Bangor. But Palisades will live and die by the blitz. The Panther offense better have their heads up on the front line. Salkin Valley's offensive line will get a boost from junior center Cody Swinney. He's back in action. Swinney will allow senior David Osmond to bounce out to left tackle to protect quarterback Dante Mahaffey's blind side. Osmond is a four-year starter. Joining Osmond and Swinney up front will be sophomores Reed Ernst and Owen Frederick. Jack Maruchak, a junior, will get reps inside a guard. Expect junior newcomer Kristen Schunk to get reps on the offensive line as well. 
Protecting Mahaffey is certainly a priority for the Panthers as dual threat Dante is the main cog in the Saucon Valley offense. Mahaffey is a 6'1", 195 junior who has thrown for over 700 yards in four games. He has completed 40 of 72 passes for 719 yards and eight touchdowns. He has also run 56 times for 347 yards and five TDs. Ty Sensitz, another junior, is Mahaffey's favorite target as he has caught 23 passes so far for 448 yards and four touchdowns. Alex Magnotic is another trusted target and good for 12 catches for 186 yards. Magnotic is a sophomore and has three highlight reel TDs. Sophomore Josh Torres leads the Panther rushing attack with 59 carries and 285 yards. Torres has three TDs. Junior Damian Garcia got his feet wet last week against Northwestern Lehigh, carrying nine times for 39 yards. With two full weeks of practice now under his belt, Garcia should expect to start hitting his stride. Garcia rushed for over 1,000 yards last season as a sophomore. Offensively, the Palisades Pirates are multiple. They give different looks ranging from five wide receivers to a tight end eye formation. Senior Mason Smeland is the star of the Pirate Offensive Show. Don't let it fool you that Smeland is listed at 5'6", 150. He is a football player to the core. He averages over eight yards a carry and has speed to burn. Smeland, number three, has 103 touches for 870 yards and 14 touchdowns. Smeland is also a serious deep ball threat when the Pirates go empty. Ty Fizzamare and Saucon Valley will have to know where Smeland is at all times. Fizzy leads the Panthers with 12 tackles per game. The weather for Friday night isn't looking all that great with rain forecast for both Thursday into Friday. But with the District 11 tournament starting next week and seeding points on the line, this Centennial Cup rivalry is more important than ever. It is going to be a knockdown, drag them out game. Good luck, Panthers. The source is with you. Here at Sock and Source, our mission is to provide information and make it as available as possible to the people in our community. A large part of that is a public service, and we're grateful for the support we have from local advertisers because that revenue helps keep the information flowing to you, our readers and listeners. Local news production does cost money, and that's why we've also introduced a voluntary membership option on Sock and Source, and we'd like to tell you a little more about that. Essentially, the membership is a recurring monthly contribution that shows your support for the work that we're doing. It helps guarantee that the information will remain free and accessible to you as well as to others in our community and it also helps fund our future growth. Sock and Source is growing and we're expanding our coverage area. The more support we receive from the community, the better coverage we can provide and the more useful the site will be to you. So that's why we would invite you to visit our membership page on the website sockandsource.com. You can do that by clicking on join under my sock and source which you'll see on the right side of your screen if you're on a desktop or at the bottom of any article page. You'll see several membership options including a monthly membership for $7, a four-month membership for $25, or a yearly membership for $70. These are strictly voluntary contribution levels, and they're not any part of a paywall. There's no requirement to contribute, but we are grateful for those who have already done so, and we hope that you will consider purchasing a membership in the future. 
Doing so is quick and easy. You can do it securely online and you can cancel at any time. Thank you again to all our current members and thank you for considering becoming a future member. Welcome to another episode of No Rain Date and another interview. This week it's my pleasure to welcome Fred Rooney. Fred is an attorney, an advocate, He's a Fulbright scholar and a Fulbright specialist who's been called the father of legal incubators, a teacher, a world traveler. He's he's definitely an accomplished citizen of the world, and it's wonderful to have you here. Thank you, Josh. It's really great to be here. Fred and his family have known my family for for many years, and and actually our roots kind of go back to the, the south side of Bethlehem, in the 1980s, we were just talking about how, how things have changed there in some ways since then and, and businesses that have come and gone. And Fred has certainly come and, and gone, but he's come back to Bethlehem recently after traveling the world for years, right? Like yeah. as a Fulbright specialist and creating or helping to set up legal incubators in other countries. So can you start by sort of explaining the legal incubator concept to to our listeners? Sure, yeah, but before I do, I just want to to tell you that how much I've always respected your parents, Josh. Uh, Thank you. As you you mentioned, I got out of law school in 1986 and and my family and I moved back to, to the Lehigh Valley. We came back to Bethlehem specifically and and so when we did, I, I met your dad when he was running the, the co-op, the food co-op on the south side. You know, we had a lot in common. One of the things, your dad's a New Yorker. Mm-hmm. And even though I was born in Bethlehem, my dad worked for Bethlehem Steel. So I was raised on Long Island in New York. And so it was always good to, to, to see a New Yorker here in the Lehigh Valley. And of course, your mom has been, you know, an amazing person, very talented and gifted. And so... As I mentioned to you, when I heard about you, I was really curious to figure out if you were connected to Andy and Martha, and sure enough, you were. So I may have seen you when you were a kid, but it's really nice to see you now and to see what you've been doing for you know the communities through all of your work. And it's really great to to be here. We only just Thanks. met, physically met after maybe 30 years. Right. Um, a week or so ago, right, right, very, very recently, and but it's been such a wonderful reconnection. Yeah, it kind of feels like coming full circle because, as you mentioned, I've been out of the valley off and on for many years after practicing law for twelve or thirteen years in, in Bethlehem, and then in, in the south side of Bethlehem, I started working in New York City. I was a graduate of the City University of New York Law School. It was also called CUNY Law School. I went to CUNY because it was a brand new law school opened up by the City University, the, one of the largest public university systems in the country. And it was designed specifically to train law students in how to use law in the service of human needs. And in, you know, in the city of New York, you've got, you've got Columbia, NYU, Fordham, St. John's, you name it. New York law, and most of the law schools were pretty much always doing the same thing. They were they were preparing law students to get out and, and represent corporations. And so, back in the in the early eighties, the, the 
politicians in New York realized that there was a tremendous need for people to have affordable legal representation because it didn't really exist. And they knew that the only way people could afford a lawyer is by having a lawyer think about the idea of charging a moderate amount of money for services as opposed to you know, the retainers that so many lawyers are known to charge that are sometimes you feel like you have to remortgage your life in order to retain a lawyer. So this law school was brand new. I started in 83 and got out in 86. And all of us who started in the first class were very committed to social justice. I was deeply committed to social justice because I was a social worker in the Lehigh Valley after I got out of Moravian in 1975. I was working primarily with immigrants who came to the valley, and you know, so I was teaching English, and I was also a social worker. But I saw the kinds of difficulties that they had, and, and I knew what kind of difficulties people had if they didn't have enough money in order to be able to retain a lawyer. And so that was really the, you know, the reason that I chose to finally go to law school. Uh, for, for anyone who's listening, if you think you know, the years are going by too quickly and you're getting older and, oh, I can't go to law school, I can't go to you know, continue professional education because I'm you know, 26, 27. I didn't go to law school until I was almost 30. I got out when I was 33. So I think young, young people sometimes feel like the pressure is on to, you know, to get out of high school, go to college, get out of college, and then stay in a job for the rest of their lives. But I've been fortunate because, as you mentioned, I, from a very early age, I had a tremendous interest in seeing the world. And mm. so I did that. And by the time I finally decided to go to law school, I had gotten a master's degree at Marywood University in bicultural bilingual studies. And that's because Spanish happens to be my second language, and, and that's always been a blessing for me. But it, it's never too late to go to school and never too late to even go to you know, to become a professional, whether it's a doctor, lawyer. Uh, sometimes the more experience you have from the time you get out of college until you decide what you want to do really helps to create a maturity in someone that you may not have if you go right into a... Uh, I, I know I'm deviating from your question, but no, no. Um, I have an opportunity to kind of talk to young people and say, do it, you know, do as much as you can, take a gap year, see the world, get to know the world, and then when you're ready to settle down and, and really put time into either law, medicine, engineering, whatever it is, it doesn't matter what it is, just do it. I, I yeah. wholeheartedly second that because I, I did that in college and, and spent a semester abroad. And I mean, I wish I had spent more time abroad in hindsight. But I mean, even though I cover hyper local news now and like my big story might be about a pothole and main street you know that that world experience that that global perspective i think makes you a better a better writer you know and absolutely a better thinker so i mean ultimately it's it's only going to benefit you no matter what you do yeah and and from what i understand like in medicine a lot of med schools are not nearly as interested in taking someone right out of college as they are someone who's had some life experiences. And so there are lots of ways to do that. I mean, there are lots of programs, AmeriCorps, Peace Corps. If you're getting out of college, there are Fulbright scholarships available for, for college grads. And, and there are lots of ways to be able to get out and see the world, do something constructive, and then at some point decide, well, now maybe it's time for me to think about going on to the next stage of my life.
And, you know, all as I mentioned, all that I, I experienced as a social worker in the Lehigh Valley really enabled me to, to develop a passion around the study of law and then ultimately in, 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 in being a lawyer. One of the things that I was able to to learn very quickly. Well, first of all, I, I, let me let me strike that. I don't, it didn't happen very quickly. Law school, unlike med school, doesn't teach you how to be a lawyer. They teach you how to get out of law school and how to pass the bar. Law medicine at least teaches you how to deal with patients. Mm-hmm. You know, so you're you start from almost day one. You're you know you're dealing with a, a cadaver. Then you're dealing with as a as an, an intern. You get practical experience, and then. When you're finally getting ready to, to, to get out of med school, you do your residency. So by the time you get out of med school, you know how to practice medicine, or so one would hope. Law school, for the most part, historically has taught you how to p- pass the bar exam. And so a lot of young people, including myself, when I got out of law school, had a great desire to use our, my, my privilege and education and my skills to help communities, people of moderate to low income, but because I didn't learn that in law school, we, I had to, to learn it kind of through the school of hard knocks. And so I worked for legal services in the Lehigh Valley, illegal aid. The irony was that as a first-year lawyer with a wife and, and two children, my income was so low that under the federal poverty guidelines, had I gone in to apply as a client to legal aid, I would have qualified. <laughs> and so, I mean, it doesn't speak well about society's commitment to lawyers who really want to ha- have an impact on people who ordinarily don't have access to justice. So I lasted a year and then I, I went out on my own. Actually, I, I, a friend of mine, Michelle Vericchio, who's now a judge in Lehigh County, and I opened up a, a law practice in, in Allentown. And it was really, really difficult to develop the skills in two areas. One is in the in running a business because a law practice is a business. And so if you want to succeed, you have to learn how to create a sustainable business. Mm-hmm. Law school doesn't teach you that. And the other thing is they don't necessarily help you with your professional development. And so the two of us opened up a practice in Allentown, and we struggled. Fortunately, we never compromised our clients' well-being. or their, But we learned through the School of Hard Knocks how to create an economically viable law practice took a couple of years. I then, Michelle stayed in, in Allentown and I came to South Bethlehem and opened up my practice. And what I think we were able to demonstrate is that as a lawyer, in order to, to do good, you have to do well. And so you could have great intentions, but if you have a family, you've got bills and, and you know student loans, you have to be able to make money. And so we did. I mean, we, I can't say we didn't make money, but one of the things we tried to do was always take into consideration the economic status of the client. And so oftentimes we would waive our fees. Oftentimes we would reduce our fees because we were strongly committed to the concept of liberty and justice for all. Not for all who can pay, but for all. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we had to bite the bullet and and kind of take a bit of a beating in order to be able to represent our clients. But we knew that that was the right thing to do. We also knew, and you know, what, what I what I wrote an article in an ABA journal about the fact that good karma as a lawyer produces, you know, very grateful clients who then turn around and, and talk about you to, to neighbors and friends when they have legal issues. And so 
I found that for you know every person I helped, the blessings came back threefold. Right. And and it wasn't the motive for me doing it, but it just seemed to be the natural way of, you know, people would say, hey, you know, so and so helped me when I was really in need, and did a great job. And so if you're looking for a lawyer or a law firm, go here. And they did. And so I was very blessed to be able to create a, a strong law practice in, in on Morton Street in South Bethlehem. We started with two or three lawyers, and then there were three or four, and we had probably an office of maybe eight with support staff. And so, you know, I was able to prove that doing well and doing good were not mutually exclusive, that you could do both, and you could make a living, and you could take your kids on vacation, you could eventually buy a house. But again, we were not having our clients remortgage their lives in order to pay us. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, 12 years went by after I got out of law school and the City University had gotten a grant to try to create a support network for CUNY law graduates who very much like myself wanted to use their law practices as a way of serving their communities. And so they were looking for someone who had experienced starting a a law practice and a a community-based law practice and serving moderate to low-income people in it. All of the things they were looking for were, were things that I had developed over the years. So I think it was 13 years after I, I started practicing, I went back to New York to, to CUNY Law School, not as a, as a student, but as, as an employee. And I started a network there that provided the kinds of training and support that I never had, Michelle and I never had. But we knew that it could oftentimes make it or break an individual if they didn't have the, the support. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of times people have great intentions. They set up a practice and they don't know how to run it. And they have to close up shop and then, you know, everybody loses. The community yeah, the loses. Yeah. yeah. So CUNY had gotten a, a grant that enabled us to create a, a network. And I started when I started in 1998, we had 10 lawyers who came on board because they were desperately trying to improve their skills in in the Bronx and Queens and Manhattan, Brooklyn, Staten Island. So they start, we started with 10 and then there were 20 and then there were 50 and then there were 100. And there were t- By the time I left CUNY several years later, there were 300 or so lawyers in this network. And it just demonstrates the fact that there are lots of lawyers who given the opportunity to develop law practices that really do look at the individual and, and what he or she is able to do what an individual's ability to pay is, is is very important. You know, as I've traveled all over the world, I've worked with young law students and lawyers all over the world who are deeply committed to social justice. And it doesn't have, they, they don't belong to one particular political party. I mean, there's a, many people feel that law is, is more like a vocation than simply a profession that when you really believe in democracy, when you really believe that we should be a more egalitarian country where you know, your access to a, the courts and your access to defend or reclaim a right that's been violated should not depend simply on your ability to pay. And, and the more I travel, the more young people I meet and, and I, I'm inspired by them. So you ask me about the incubator. About seven years after I was working at, at CUNY Law School, we had always talked about the idea of, of having a space where we could bring 
lawyers into set up shop as opposed to having them be trained by coming back to the law school in, in Queens and fighting the traffic on the BQE and the FDR and the LIE. But they were desperate to, to, to learn. And these were lawyers, they weren't students, but they came back. The ideal was that if we could find a space to train them, that we could do it in a much more methodical way and we could help them create stronger practices and avoid developing the kinds of bad skills that lawyers a lot of times develop and have a hard time breaking. And so, as, as good fortune would, would have it, I got a call one day from a local member of the state assembly and they said that they had some money that they wanted to put towards the program I was directing. And once we had some funding available, then the idea of creating a space came into play. But there was nothing like it to, you know, that, to model it on. There mm. had never been that, and I did a lot of research to see if there was something that we could replicate, and there wasn't. Mm. What I did find out is people were saying, well, you know, you, maybe you could look at the incubator model. And the only thing I knew about incubators were for, for premature babies and hatching chicks. I didn't know that there was a, a model, an incubator model, that was really a, a training model that for the most part would bring in people from different disciplines, whether it was, you know, whether it was graphic designers or, or engineers. Incubators were set up to be able to, to train participants in two areas. One is in the development of business skills, and the other is in the development of professional skills. So I started you know, researching incubators in Queens because I was working in Queens, and I saw that there was one for graphic designers. And I went in and I was blown away because there are like a, a 10 or 12 young people who were developing their own graphic design companies, corporations, yeah. or, or firms. And what really convinced me was at one point I, I went to an incubator for bakers. <laughs> and the bakers would come in in shifts. They'd have the use of the ovens and all the equipment for eight hours and they would come in and they'd learn how to develop their baking skills and then they would learn how to develop the the, the art of financially creating a, a bakery. And I'm thinking like, well, if everybody else has a, can have an, an incubator, bakers and art graphic designers and lots of other kinds of people working in different areas, why not lawyers? And so I was able to take the, the incubator model and kind of retrofit it to meet the needs, the needs of, of, of lawyers. And we started, I mean, it was a small pilot project for, for nine lawyers. And to be honest, the extent of my, my dream was just, you know, create this nice space and let's see how it goes. Well, that was at, towards the end of 2007. As everybody knows, in 2008, the world economy tanked. Mm -hmm. And what happened was law schools and bar associations all over the country were dealing with, well, law schools with thousands of graduates who had no jobs. Bar associations were desperate to develop, you know, new membership. And in 2008, I was contacted by the New York Times and a reporter wanted to take a look at this project. And I was kind of surprised that the New York Times would be interested in this little program for nine lawyers, but a reporter came interviewed the, the clients of the lawyers involved, interviewed the lawyers, and it was supposed to be an A1 front page story on the New York Times, but there was a primary election that resulted in you know pretty major news in New York State. 
and the article was bumped from A1 to the local section, but it was a New York Times article. Hmm. And once the, the Times reported on it, CNN headline news called me in to talk about this. And I, I mean, I, I couldn't believe it. It just seemed to me like this was nothing that I envisioned that this idea, this concept would begin to take on a life of its own, but it did. And so, you know, I do have to just emphasize that this was not a nice training program for lawyers. It was a, a program that was designed specifically for, for, for lawyers who were, were interested in creating law practices in, in underserved communities in New York City. Mm-hmm. We knew that most everybody else would finally get a job in a, maybe a small firm or a firm or wherever, and someone would help them to develop their skills. But people who really wanted to do the right thing in their underserved communities didn't have that. They didn't have necessarily the godfather or an uncle or an aunt in the courts. So they relied on, on us. And once we created a you know, really diverse group of, of young people in the incubator, bar associations and law schools all over the country started to look at the, the project. And then I would say that from 2009, 2010, my life changed dramatically because I was getting calls from people all over the country who were interested in creating incubators for their law students, for their law grads, or for members of the bar. And and so by you know 2011, 12, I was I was literally flying all over creation and watching the incubators develop and and, and launch all across the U.S. And it was very exciting and very gratifying to know that lots of young people were being trained in, in a way that we knew would ultimately help people with unmet legal needs who just really struggled to be able to have their voices heard or their cases heard mm-hmm. because they didn't have funds. And so uh, the numbers of young people, and sometimes it wasn't only young in terms of age, sometimes there were people who were older, they went to school, law school older, but they were part of the, I, I should say, new lawyers. To kind of jump, go fast forward. Today there are about somewhere between 60 and 65, 70 incubators that have spun off of the New York model. You know, they're spread out all over the U.S. A few have ceased to exist after several years, sometimes funding, sometimes, you know, the, the uh, desire of an institution to continue to maintain a program for law graduates is something they just decide against. I mean... We were the pioneers in the whole concept of post-legal education, post-graduate legal education. Up until 1998, 1999, there was virtually no post-graduate legal education. And so mm-hmm. we started the, the whole notion that lawyers really deserved to be trained. They needed to be trained. And, and incubators was just one of the ways we were doing it. 2012-13, I applied for and was awarded a, a Fulbright grant to see if I could replicate the model in the Dominican Republic and spent nine months there working on incubator development in Santo Domingo. Amazing experience. Uh, Again, I met incredibly committed young people who wanted to use their education and privilege in society to help people who were in need. And once I realized that, you know, I knew that it, it was working in the U.S. because the numbers 2014, 15, 16, they were skyrocketing. So the Dominican re- incubator was the first non-U.S.-based incubator. I got back from from the Dominican Republic, and the following year was awarded a Fulbright Specialist Grant, 
and I started working in, in Pakistan, in okay. Islamabad. And the idea was to, once again, train young lawyers who wanted to serve people in their communities. One of the greatest parts of the Pakistani incubator was that the women in the incubator joined forces and, and created a, a mechanism to be able to reach out to women who, you know, in many instances were, were not permitted by virtue of cultural norms to connect with a male lawyer. Uh -huh. And so if they had issues of domestic violence or issues that they, you know, legal issues that needed to be addressed, the only way they could really do it is through women, uh -huh. through women lawyers. And, and so we, paid, we put a lot of emphasis on the training of, of female lawyers who then turned around and, you know, were able to serve women in need. The BBC did a report on the women of the Pakistani incubator. I'm kind of getting to the end of the story. I feel like I'm, this is a <laughs> soliloquy. But after Pakistan, I started working briefly in Spain, starting an incubator there in Cordoba. And that incubator was specifically designed to, to support young Roma lawyers. I don't know if the people in the listening audience are familiar with the term Roma, but the Roma people came from the subcontinent of, of Asia, primarily from India, and they migrated to Europe. And, and then for about 500 years were, were enslaved in Europe. As, as the years went by, as the, the centuries went by, the plight of the Roma people in Europe is very bleak. I mean, mm -hmm. the, in terms of education, the, high, the lowest level of education, the highest level of you know, teen pregnancy, unemployment, all of the social issues that you know, sometimes we see in other communities where there's slavery or right. subjugation has been rampant. And so in, in Spain, we realized that young Roma, first of all, there are very few Roma people who graduate from high school and then go into college, and the numbers of, of people becoming lawyers were, were minimal. And, and the population of about a million in Spain, the numbers were very low. And so the incubators were, the incubator was a great way to help support young people who, who really needed the, a helping hand once they got out. From there, I then went on to start working in the Balkans. And so up until the pandemic, I was working in Bulgaria, in Sofia, Bulgaria. And once again, working with Roma, not, not, it was predominantly Roma. It was open to, you know, young people mm -hmm. of any background, but that's been a really exciting program. It's it's changed pretty dramatically since the pandemic hit because the ability to do in-house training was was then you know it, it just went away, and now a lot of what's being done is is being done online. Mm -hmm. But young people are being trained and and dealing with issues of you know deep importance to the to Roma communities. They're dealing with issues of hate speech, hate crimes, and, and, you know, incarceration, all kinds of issues. And so it's been very inspiring to see young young Roma law graduates get out of law school and and then look for ways to be able to, to do well so that they can do good in their communities. You know, while I was in Bulgaria, I was spending some time in Albania, in Tirana, uh, and also in, in Bucharest, Romania. Uh -huh. And so... Had it not been for for COVID, I'd be probably be in bouncing between Albania, Romania, and Bulgaria. Huh. But with opportunities to to be in Argentina, different parts of Latin America, you know, the the my travel is generally I travel as I mentioned about one hundred and twenty five thousand miles a year. 
Yeah. And so I came back from Morocco and in Spain in March, the first week of March, and I've not been on a a plane since. I'm I'm finally decided to bite the bullet and go see my son in Portland, Oregon at the end of the month. And so I'm just going to take a lot of hand sanitizer and a good mask and and hope for the best. But, you know, life has been incredibly wonderful in many ways for me. I, I feel blessed beyond imagination to be able to to travel the world and spend time with the United Nations in, in the Middle East, hope to go back to the Middle East. And I just wait to see what, you know, tomorrow brings. But I'm hoping that once we can get a handle on, on COVID, that travel not only for myself, but for people all over the world can, can start once again. It's vitally important for people that do the kind of work that you do and many other fields too. I'm curious, has the work that you've done in other countries, has it changed your view of your, your views or your outlook on social justice in the U.S.? Well, what it, what it, what's happened is I, you know, I, I can't really use the U.S. system, at least for civil justice, as the model in which we should replicate because statistics show that anywhere between 70 and 75 percent, could be 80 percent of people in this country, don't have access to ju- to the courts and to representation because they can't afford it. And so either you qualify in, c- in civil matters through legal services because you know, your income is so low that you're assigned a lawyer for free or you have the money to pay. But if you don't fall into the, either of those categories, you're pretty much you know, out of luck. And so I try to look at the best of what we have to offer in society, in, in, in American justice, and then visit countries and take a look at, at where they are in terms of access to justice. But I have, I have to say that it's bleak. I used to think that the United Kingdom had such a great system of, of justice for, for, for everybody. And as their economy began to wane, so too did the funding for, you know, legal services. And, and so, you know, in this country, we hardly even talk about it. And, and, and again, I will say that neither, neither of the two major parties talk about the lack of access to justice for people in this country as a huge problem. And I really believe that the failure of our society to adequately deal with the issue of unequal access to justice undermines the whole concept of democracy. Because, you know, we were taught from day one that our country was indivisible with liberty, based on liberty and justice for all. And I really wish that I, when, when those words are said, that they had a lot of true meaning to them. But when you look at the numbers of people in the country who cannot access the system, you know, you have to start wondering how can we create a more just and equal society? And so, you know, your question is, well, you know, what? Yeah, how can we close the gap? I mean, legal incubators are part of that. Well, you know, legal incubators are a grain of sand on the beach, right? They do help for the people who who are part of the programs and the people who benefit from the lawyers' benevolence and their you know desire to help. They're very grateful. But we're talking about millions of people. You know, incubators can handle maybe a year, several thousand people. 
but we're talking about millions of people in our country who don't have anywhere to go when they have legal issues. And, and what's, what's happened over the last number of years is people go into court on their own. They, they go in, it's called pro se. Mm -hmm. They don't, they have to be in court. They're being sued or they're going to sue somebody. They can't afford a lawyer. They don't qualify for legal assist assistance. So they go in on their own. And oftentimes they're, they go up against the, the, the other party who has a lawyer. And so it's a tremendous problem for the courts, for judges, because judges want to be as fair as possible. But there are rules and regulations that dictate how hearings or, or trials are, are held. And when you're dealing with someone who doesn't really have any sense, it puts a tremendous strain on the courts. Right. Um, you know, I can tell you that up until just a few years ago, in New York City housing court, 99% of the litigants were unrepresented. Hmm. Wow. And so Shocking. what is it going to take? You know, it's going to take a revamping of the entire justice system. I mean, I'm not even getting into the, the issue of criminal justice. You know, at the very minimum, we do have a constitutional right to, an individual has a constitutional right to representation if they're charged with a, a crime and they, they, they can't afford a lawyer. So we know that in, in those instances it works. But in civil justice, you know, husband or wife who's stuck in a marriage, an abusive marriage and can't get the divorce in order to move on, the, I don't know how many people are listening who may have an elderly mother, father who needs a guardianship to be able to, you know, the, the, the children or grandchildren need to have the guardianship of the incapacitated elderly person or someone who had an accident. And to get in, I remember when I was practicing, the going rate was like $3,500 for a guardianship. I don't know what it is today, but, you know, most people are struggling to be able to, to feed their kids or pay their mortgage or keep up, especially now. Right. Um, and so... It's, 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 it's hard to imagine how we could create a more equitable system without really, you know, a major overhaul of, of the way the, the civil justice system is set up in this country. Well, if, I mean, if you're paying for an attorney out of pocket by the hour now, it's probably like $200 an hour. Oh, well, if you're like lucky. That. Yeah. You know, you know, I think like... Probably in the valley, it could be two hundred, two fifty an hour. Right. It could be three fifty an hour. It could be four hundred dollars. You know, in New York City, it's easily five hundred dollars an hour. Like even if there's a lawyer who charges two hundred and fifty dollars an hour and is very moved by the person who comes in to seek assistance, and the lawyer is is willing to to kind of modify the cost to a hundred and fifty dollars an hour, how many people? today have $150 an hour to pay a lawyer. And, you know, because if it's a, if it's a civil justice, if it's a divorce uh, with a custody component, it could take hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of time. And, and, and you know, I think anybody who's listening, who has had difficulty when it comes to trying to figure out how to, to get the system to be able to work in, in your favor understands that money talks and that hasn't changed and it, the only change is that more and more people are less and less apt to be able to to, 
have legal representation when they go to court. Right. Yeah. And I honestly wish that it, it were talked about. I wish it became the platform of either political party, uh, but it isn't. You know, we, we get sidetracked with so many other issues, and then, you know, we see a lot of deterioration in society. And I think that when people, you know, get feel alienated and, and it, it makes it harder and harder to, to feel good about day-to-day living. And so... I, I wish I had a magic wand. You know, I wish I, I wish instead of 60 or 70 incubators, there were 6,000. And even if we had 6,000, it still wouldn't scratch the surface. Is, is there a country that you feel does have a really good model of equal justice for all? Uh, like some of this, I would think like um, Norway, the Scandinavian countries, but, you know, they've got so, so much money. Right. And so... But even even with as much money as, as as a lot of people earn in those in those countries, there's still a lot of need. And but I know that I, I believe Norway. I believe it's Norway has a really strong social component for being represented. Mm-hmm. I don't think anybody should have to go into court on his own or her own because they can't afford a lawyer but desperately need to be in court. It's hard to see how it would be a fair fight. It, you know, it, it, it's terrible if you were born and raised here and English is your first language. If you maybe were not born here and your, your language skills are less proficient, it becomes even more difficult, if not impossible. And even though the courts, I, I have to give credit to the courts for trying, but, you know, they're really swimming against the current. And, and judges, you know, throw their hands up and... They're pulling out their hair because they're inundated day in and day out with people who are pro se litigants. They don't have a lawyer, but someone else does. Or neither side has a lawyer. And then it's like the role of the judge becomes even more difficult. Is the enrollment in law schools, the diversity increasing? More women, more... Um... Well, I know that, that CUNY Law School is... is probably one of the most diverse in the country. Law school enrollment was down, but I think it's sort of gone up. As the economy was really depressed, there were no jobs for lawyers, so people didn't go to law school. As the economy began, the economy began to pick up, more and more people decided to go to law school. And I think that you know, whatever side of the aisle you may be on, people are realizing that law is, a, is probably one of the most effective ways to create social change, depending on what, what it is that you want. And so, you know, you can see very conservative law schools, and you can see a school like CUNY, which is considered to be very progressive. And, and so we have lots of lawyers in the country, but we don't have enough lawyers who are as you know so committed to, to social justice that money is, is less of the focus. Right. That's a fine. lot is being done through technology now, which is helping to reduce the cost of, of a lawyer. You know, when a lawyer is able to do a lot more online, when hearings can be held without having to be physically in the courtroom, but you can do it through Zoom or some other platform, it, it does reduce the cost. And, and uh, you know, the other thing is, and this is what I, I love about the American spirit, a lot of people have just decided 
we are totally going to bypass lawyers. And when you know, there are so many kinds of programs now, legal Zoom mm-hmm. and uh, you know all kinds of programs that allow people mm-hmm. to do their own wills, do their own, you name it. And people are developing the skills because they said we're we're really tired of, of feeling ga- like we've been gouged, and so they're they're trying to do a lot on their own, and that's happening. You know, paralegals are being used more. So there are major and dramatic changes in the way law is being practiced because of technology, but it still doesn't make make it that easy for people who maybe don't have the technology to be able to rely on or don't have or still don't have enough money to pay even if it's at a reduced cost. Mm-hmm. In that sense, I wish I could be more optimistic. I think when I was younger, I used to think I could change the world. But the older I got and the more I saw as a lawyer, I realized I was never going to be able to change the world. But if I could have a positive impact on an individual or individuals, or I don't know, during the course of my lifetime, at least I could feel like I did have an impact in a positive way. And and I think a lot of people subscribe to that idea. And so as a lawyer, it's helping an individual one person at a time to the extent, to the greatest extent possible. Oh, I can definitely relate relate to that ideology. And, uh, and, and I, I love the idea of incubators and and replicating that model in other areas. I mean, I'm not a lawyer, obviously, but I'm thinking about journalism. And as far as I know, most journalism schools don't teach you how to run your own business, which is what I ended up doing. I didn't go to journalism school either, but I think that would be really helpful because journalists are being laid off and many don't have the skills to become independent. So I could imagine that, that being something well, I mean, that, it's a it's a great point, Josh. And and if you know, maybe five or six people who fall into that category, and you want to bring them together and create, try to find space. A lot of space is more affordable now than ever because a lot of it space is vacant, or just the ability to do so much. You know, I'm I'm on on I'm on Zoom meetings all over the world, a couple times a week. So we've we've become very resilient through the pandemic, although we were relying on virtual meetings long before COVID came into play. And a lot of the incubators are now being created only virtually. And that that started before COVID. So it's not not a reaction to COVID. But I think it would be exciting to see if you could create something, even in the Valley, for for young people or for graduates who are sort of stuck, right? Yeah. And, and a lot of what I think we all have on our hands more now than ever is, is time. And so it's time sometimes can allow us to be as creative as possible and dream in ways that we can't even imagine could positively impact not only on individuals but on society. Yeah. And so I would strongly encourage you, I would work with you to, to, to think about a program and, and any, anybody who's listening, I mean, there, there are lots of, of people who are extremely talented who may want to start their own business. They don't know how to do it. And I honestly believe that incubator, the incubator model has been instrumental in, all over the world. Right. If, if it's designed around a particular area or profession or discipline, it would be fantastic. Yeah. 
No, I mean, absolutely. I think we're both on this on the, the same side of the coin. And, you know, I, I think of it as, you know, access to, well, knowledge of the law is freedom. And access to information is freedom, too, because without that, you you really, if you don't even know that there's there's a wrong, it can't be right. Well, that's true. A woman by the name of Rebecca Sandifer is, I think last year she was named a MacArthur genius. Hmm. And, and what she's done is that exactly what you're talking about. She's, she's studied access to justice in the, in the U.S. And, and found that most people don't even know they have an issue that could be resolved yeah. through the prop, using the proper channels. And so people live their lives tormented by you know, a neighbor who's driving them crazy or, or, or uh, a relationship that's abusive or whatever, and they don't know that there are, there are ways to, to resolve it. And that's really sad. It is, especially considering the technolo- technological advances that, that have made information more accessible. Also misinformation, though, too. Well, that's the scariest part of what's going on today. Yes. Yeah. And, and that's on all spectrums, the radicalization of young people and people in general through the media, through social media. Yes, um, that, that would be another hour probably. Oh, yeah. To yeah talk yeah. about that. But, but I want to thank you for, for joining us. And I hope that, you know, you're able to get back out into the world Certainly when COVID ends, which will hopefully be sooner rather than later, but you're, you're doing great work out there. And, thank you, Josh. Thanks and, and thank for you having for, me. For yeah. doing that. And send my very best to your parents. I will. I will. We'll have to all, all get together and, and have, yeah. a, have a chat sometime about the, the old days. <laughs> yeah, the good old days in South Bethlehem. Definitely. Well, there's still good. There are good new days in South Bethlehem. I, I, I live in, in South Bethlehem, and I love it. And, you know... It's it's close to Hellertown, and this is a, a you know, place I've always loved, Hellertown, and, and there's so many good things. Yes. You know, I, I I always say to anybody, if you hear me can, complaining, you know, you can ki- give me a, a good kick in the pants because sometimes it's hard to remember that we are, just by virtue of health and food and shelter, we're blessed beyond imagination. And I, I see, as I travel all over the world, what people don't have, and I see what we do have. And, and I know that, you know, the pandemic is a real good excuse for all of us to sit around and complain about everything. But the bottom line is, you know, if we're really smart, we could use this time to regroup and be creative. And so I, I think I'm going to be following up with you about the whole idea of an incubator for, for journalists. And what, what, what did you say that the topic would be overall for well, for for business, certainly, you know, business for 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 independent journalists, yeah, um, yeah, especially digital, right, because that's the way of the future. Yeah, and bringing them together with with you know videographers and photographers and graphic designers. And there's so much that that can that can can be done. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I, I wish you lots that. of luck. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure. We've been recording No Rain Date since late 2019, and we've produced a fair number of episodes at this point. We would love to hear your feedback about what we're doing. What makes you tune in every week? 
what ideas do you have for interview guests? Is there something that you think the podcast is missing? Feel free to share your thoughts, whether they're good, bad, or indifferent with us. You can do that by emailing josh at josh at sawkinsource.com. No Rain Date is a local news and information podcast, and we focus on the Saucon Valley. However, our guests are from the Lehigh Valley and beyond. So please try and keep that in the back of your mind when you're thinking about ideas for future episodes. Thank you. No Rain Date is an original production of Saucon Source, LLC. Our theme music is provided by This Way to the Egress. For more great music by them, be sure to follow This Way to the Egress on Spotify. Thank you for listening. Every night, he climbs the tower, sees your face on every dollar.